to tell me the uh, clock isn't working this morning back there, so I have to do my own timing. And I don't know if I can set this to an hour and 20 or not. But <laughs> we will do the best that we can, right? Thankfully for her, the situation for you guys is that I have to get to North Campus later, so I can't stay here forever. But what a morning. Man, what music. Do you love that? It is so awesome. I don't know who that little guy in the back is playing drums, but he gets me fired up every time I get to come to Central Campus and listen to him. It is great. Uh, I just, man, I can't even clap in time. I don't know how they do those kind of things. Well, this morning, as has been uh, announced already, and as Steve was reading from John chapter 12, we're focused on the uh, triumphal entry as we begin Passion Week uh, at this church. You know, Easter is one of those strange holidays that so it's become in America where people don't really know what to do with it, right? I mean, it gets kind of lost in the hubbub of everything else going on. Uh, I think your neighbors, my neighbors, they really don't know what the point of it is, right? Between Easter bunnies, green grass, uh, hollow eggs, um, people just don't understand it's about a savior. And we have to explain it. And part of that explanation is understanding exactly what happened this week. Um, to that end, this morning, we're going to walk through a little bit of what it was like 2,000 years ago at the beginning of Holy Week, right? Now, for me, growing up in a non-Christian home, uh, Easter had a little bit of significance because uh, schools were still letting you out for a week on Easter week. The neat invention of spring break had not happened yet. It was just called Easter week, and we got that time off. But I remember that uh, uh, one of those Easter's as a young guy was the year that I got hit in the eye with a, uh, an arrow and lost my eye, and I had to... Uh, endure a lot of hospital visits and all that kind of stuff. But finally the time came where my mom had to announce to me that I'm gonna go into the hospital and they were gonna remove the eye and all that. And that was kind of a traumatic thing for a young man. Um, but it was over Easter week. And if there's any kind of uh, you know bright light to a dark, heavy cloud in one's life, it's being in the hospital and having everyone feels sorry for you and on Easter weekend because uh, next to my bed was a shelf that was a window and it had about a foot wide shelf and my mom worked for Northwestern Bell in Omaha and all of her friends felt sorry for the little guy who was going through surgery during Easter and so even though I had patches on both eyes because they didn't want me to do, use my good eye uh, I kind of cheated I would pry the corner of the tape up and look, and that whole shelf was full of all kinds of chocolate rabbits, chocolate eggs, <laughs> baskets of whatever were there, and I was thrilled. Now, the only bad part was my brother and my cousins would come visit me in the hospital, and I don't know if you've ever been through anything like this, but when you can't see, people also think you can't hear. Yeah, my mom would say to my brother, oh, just take one. <laughs> he won't notice. <laughs> I can hear you just fine. 
Dean, keep your hands off of that chocolate rabbit, right? My favorite was the popcorn bunny. Somebody had gotten creative and made a popcorn bunny about that big. And uh, it's like a you know, popcorn ball you might get at Halloween or something, at least in the old days. And I thought that was just going to be wonderful. But at night, when everybody was gone and they were home, uh, there was a young man, I don't even know his name anymore, but he was so kind to me in the next bed. I don't remember what his problem was as far as surgery, but he would come over and he would give me some of the stuff off my window shelf. And I'm sure with the hope that I would say, hey, take one yourself, you know, or whatever. But that's what Easter means, meant to me. It might have meant something like that to you. I certainly didn't have any idea about a Savior, about Jesus, that would come later in my life. But your neighbors today, they need to hear the good word. They need to understand why it is that a huge chunk of the world celebrates Passion Week. Even the word Passion Week, you know. If you're not in tune with Christianity, uh, you might think passion. Is somebody in love? You know? Well, yeah, actually, God is. God's in love with us. And he sent his son to die for us. Well, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, where the triumphal entry is taking place. But before we do that, let's just set the, the scenery here a little bit. I don't know if the map made it to the guys up in the booth, but I have a little chart for you this morning that uh, kind of demonstrates where we're at. Now, leading up to this, uh, Jesus and his friends, his disciples, were walking Then they came down through Perea into Judea, and they came over to Jericho. Think of it as being north and a little bit over. And then it was a 15-mile walk uphill to Jerusalem. They were coming to town to celebrate Passover. This was an annual event. Thousands of people would come to Jerusalem every year at this time so that they could celebrate and so they could sacrifice at the temple. Uh, This was your identity as a Jewish person. You were part of the covenant community. And this is going to be something your whole family would come to. So the city was choked with people. But Jesus and his friends had come up from the west, uh, from the east, excuse me, and they were heading up this road and it twist and it turned. It was a dangerous road. They didn't want to be out there at night because it was known for having its robbers and its thieves. Uh, They were heading to Bethany which you can see on the map, is right there on this side of the Mount of Olives. And there's a little community there where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Now, really, to put the Passion Week in its proper setting, you have to go back one week prior, right? This would be last Saturday. What were you doing last Saturday, right? Jesus was busy. He was in Bethany. He had been summoned, come, Our brother is sick. Mary and Martha, two of his most devoted and uh, close followers, had said, Jesus, you got to get here. There's something wrong with Lazarus. He needs you. And so Jesus comes, but he's late, at least in their mind, because Lazarus had already died. He'd been wrapped in his funeral linens. He had been put in the family tomb, and it was over. The mourners had come. The mourners had cried. And when Jesus arrived, there's just a little hint of bitterness in the greeting that Mary and Martha, his former friends, gave to him. Where have you been? 
We needed you. We've seen you do so many things, right? And Jesus comes over, and to make a long story short, he just says, Lazarus, come out. Now, he'd raised people from the dead before, right? The widow's son, right? Jairus' daughter. But they had just died. They had just died. Their eyes had just closed on the world. And so people, even though they recognized that Jesus had that kind of authority, that kind of power over death, Lazarus had been in there for four days, right? Uh, he should have been experiencing some degeneration of tissue. There should have been an odor. Uh, this was way beyond any possibility that the person might just come back on their own. But nevertheless, Jesus says, come forth. And Lazarus comes out, still dressed in his linens. And the people could not believe it. And you see, that happened last Saturday. And the news of this had spread through Jerusalem, through the small towns around there, Bethpage, Bethany, Jericho, and so forth. And the reputation of Jesus was huge. People were saying, this prophet, this Galilean, we've heard so many wonderful things before, but now this man walks. Now, if we look in John 12, uh, that Steve just read this morning, but we go to a different part of it just a little bit earlier, this caused such a ruckus. So many people were focused on Christ that it really is kind of the onsetting situation that results in Jesus' death. I'm going to read starting in verse 9. It says, When the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Get my pages apart here. Whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, note this, because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away. They were leaving their traditional path of life, their traditional belief system, and they were believing in Jesus. Lazarus had caused such a stir, but not really him. I mean, coming from the dead, that's, that's amazing. But Jesus had called him forth, and then he had just disappeared. He and his men, they kind of circled around. They went up north for a while, and they came around. And by the time they came back on the next Saturday, which would have been yesterday, right, if we were living in real time 2,000 years ago, and they arrived at Bethany, there's Mary, there's Martha, there's Lazarus. Just like it always had been. But this man had tasted death. This man had caused large crowds to shift their focus, to think about something different than their everyday life. This man, in his resurrection, in a sense, had caused people to forsake the religion of their fathers, at least the way this was interpreted to them by the chief priests and the scribes. And this man was causing people to focus on Jesus. Now, you remember that so far in the three years of Jesus' ministry life, he had really kind of dampened people's enthusiasm about telling others who he truly was, right? You know, if he healed you of leprosy, it was probably likely he would say, now don't tell anybody, <clears throat> right? Go present yourself to the priests, get cleansed, go through all the uh, typical mosaic 
uh, steps of the law so that you can be restored to society, but let's just keep this between me and you, right? If he uh, had come and he had spit in your eyes to bring sight back, he might have said, just, let's just keep this quiet. If he had cast demons out of you, he just kind of disappeared. Uh, Jesus was constantly on the move. And so were his disciples, not just the 12, but his disciples. Remember, these 12 that we're all so familiar with, they really weren't commissioned for the job of being apostles until halfway through Jesus' three years of ministry. Uh, and so there was a large pool of people that are also disciples, and they followed Jesus. In addition to the prominent women that are in his entourage, right? Mary Magdalene, his mother Mary, and so forth. And so Jesus has quite a crowd. And so when they arrive at Bethany, it's not just Jesus and the twelve. There's a group of people there, because everybody has to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. Well, they wanted to be there by Friday night, right? They wanted to get to Bethany to celebrate Sabbath. And that starts at Friday night at sunset, and it goes through the next day to Saturday evening at sunset. And the meal is taken, the preparations are made. This is the last time that Jesus will celebrate Sabbath in this fashion. Saturday night, Jesus is sitting there in the house, and Mary, probably Mary of Bethany, of Mary and Martha fame, comes, and she takes a very expensive container of perfume. Uh, it's called nard. And she takes it, and she dumps it on Jesus' feet. She anoints his feet. And she just gives this expensive stuff. It says it's a whole pound. I don't know. I, I, I live with a woman who cannot stand harsh smells. I mean, when I say harsh, I mean anything that really is fragrant. Um, I, you go back to my desk drawer, you'll see that I have a little thing of uh, cologne because I don't put that out in the house. It just causes Ione to have a headache. And my friend Nate McGlumfrey, when he used to work here at church, he couldn't stand smells. You know, it just bothered him. Give him a migraine right off the bat. So sometimes being ornery as I am, I would just spray a little bit in my office knowing he was coming. As soon as he hit the door, he'd be like, Dave, oh, come on, man. That's just terrible. But this day, this was an act of worship. This was an honor on Saturday night, last night. She pours this nard, also known as spike nard, and she does it effusively without reservation, weeping. She knows that this is for him. She's anointing him. She's saying, this is only worthy of a king. Now, this spikenard, wow, it's expensive, right? 300 denarii. One denarii is worth one day of labor back in this day. 300 denarii? That's like you work for a year. Today, it would probably be worth $12,000. But Mary's conviction and devotion to the Lord. Now remember, she'd just seen her brother come back to life. This is Passover celebration week. And she probably is thinking, I want to honor this man. How else can I honor him? 
And so she does this. She anoints him. And she's basically saying, you're worthy. You're the man. Uh, this was probably passed down from generation to generation in her family. It doesn't say necessarily that Mary and Martha were wealthy, but they were probably doing well. They were doing okay, but that's a lot of money. And she just poured it out on her Savior. Now, I don't know how much experience you have with strong smells, but I'm telling you, this smell didn't go away. I think that Jesus carried the smell with him throughout most of this week. I, I, I've done things, you know, you chop onions and you take a shower. And your hands still smell like onions, right? You, you get something on you and no matter what you do, you still smell that way. This smell of this nard was going to follow Jesus. It's a royal smell. It's a smell associated for the people of that day with a king. Only a king could afford this. It's worth a king's ransom, so to speak. And Jesus had this, a whole pound of it, on him on Saturday night. He received her worship. He received her honor. Come Sunday morning, and that's what brings us into our passage. It's the triumphal entry morning. I, I don't know how the morning breakfast went. It's, it's Sunday. It's today, right? And Jesus is with the guys and with his followers. And he says, hey, here's what I want you to do. If you look in chapter 21, it says, uh, saying to two disciples, go to the village in front of you, immediately find a donkey and a colt with them, untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So a little prophetic utterance. Jesus saying to his disciples, go over to probably Bethpage, a little town next here. Probably Jesus knew this person. He might have been a follower of Christ. Or Mary and Martha, their family, might have known this person. But obviously this had been prearranged. And he says, go get this colt. Now, this is a mare, the mother, and a colt, a foal. And he says, bring them this way. And they will send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Here's a quote from uh, Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And what's going to happen is that when these men return, Jesus has arranged this situation where they're going to put blankets on the back of the colt, not the mother, not the mayor, just the colt. And he's going to get on it, and he's going to ride that colt for the two miles from Bethany all the way in to Jerusalem. It's an uphill deal. I'm sure his men were thinking, why are we doing this? We've walked everywhere. For three years, we've walked from Galilee to Capernaum, Capernaum, you know, all, just all over the place. And now he's going to ride a colt. But there must have been something crackling in the air. I think there was excitement. Because for these guys, I think it began to dawn on them exactly what the message was today. You see, riding a colt or a, or a donkey uh, was a tradition in their culture. We see this when... Uh, David's sons in 2 Samuel chapter 13 
uh, are riding to their meeting with Absalom, but they all, all of David's sons are on a mule. That was just a sign of royalty. Only they would be on a mule. We see this with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1. I think I'll turn there for us and just take a look at it. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon, uh, there was a struggle for who was going to be king after his father David died. And Bathsheba, David's, one of David's wives, came to him and said, well, I'm concerned because already another of your sons, Adonijah, has announced that he is king. And he and his friends are currently uh, in the middle of town and they're having a great feast, and the people are shouting, Ajaniah is king. Yes, Ajaniah is king. And she says, what about Solomon? I thought that was our agreement. And David wants to comfort her and says, don't worry. Uh, my son will be king. So he calls Zadok the priest, uh, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah, one of his most loyal followers. And he says, here's what I want you to do. In verse 33, uh, Eight. So the, these three men and the Cherites and the Pelophites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon, to the springs, where he is anointed king, right? The priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Sound familiar? Was Mary of Bethany's act of putting nard on Jesus a uh, chance happening? No, she may not even understood, but she was fulfilling a role. She was anointing Jesus as king. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by the noise. A little hyperbole there, obviously, but still you get the picture. Solomon is being led into town after being anointed king by the priest. And the people are rejoicing over this. And there's pipes playing and there's people dancing and the whole town is just aflame with passion that their king, the wise one, Solomon, is coming. Of course, Adonijah and his friends are going, what is going on? And they look out and they see this crowd of people heading towards them. And they know it's over. Their attempt to usurp the throne is gone. And Solomon becomes the king. We also see this with Jehu. King Jehu, who was a general in King Ahab's army in the Old Testament. And Jehu was a vicious man, strong man. But yet, he was anointed to be king by the servants of Elisha. And in his long story, where he's purging Israel, by God's command of disobedience. The blankets are laid out and people are praising as he becomes king. In the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, there is a revolt against foreign oppression, right? Samuel and Judas Maccabees, if you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees in those apocryphal books, you get a little bit of the history of Israel during those times and in an attempt to throw off they're foreign oppressors. They revolt, and they're successful. And when Samuel Maccabees comes into Jerusalem after the battle that he has won, what is happening? He's on a colt, and people have spread blankets before him, their robes, actually. 
and palm branches are being waved, and he is hailed as the king. So, on this Sunday morning, this morning, with Jesus and his followers in Bethany, as Jesus gets on this colt, sitting on the robes of some of his followers, as soon as they see him, and remember, this crowd's already fired up because Lazarus is just standing behind Jesus. They know immediately what this means. The smell of the nard is hitting their noses. The royal anointing. Jesus on a colt, heading to Jerusalem, going up to the gate Hadad, right? Wow! All kinds of Bible verses are going through their heads. Psalm 118, Psalm 8. They've heard them since they were trained as children. The king has arrived. The king has arrived with glory, with power, with signs and wonder. And that two-mile journey up the hill to the southeast side, right at the Temple Mount, which is full of people, like in Solomon's day, going crazy, right? Waving palm fronds at him. The smell as those palms are going back and forth seemed to push that odor of royalty out into the crowd. In every way, Jesus would be seen as king. You're thinking, I ain't riding no donkey. I mean, if that was me, I'd find something better than a donkey. That's for sure. Um, this is a sign of humility. This is a sign that there's something different going on here that the people didn't grasp. Oh, they were praising God that this was the man. They're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, which basically means save me. Save me. But what were they wanting salvation from? Probably foreign oppression. Get the Romans out of here. Get these corrupt uh, Herodians and the Greek-inspired priests and the Sanhedrin who oppress us almost as much as the Romans. Get them out of here. You're going to bring the hosts of heaven behind you, and you are going to set all injustices right. But Jesus had another mission, really, didn't he? As he's riding into Jerusalem, he knows exactly why he is there. Oh, he's accepting their praise and their fanfare, but there's another reason why he is there. And when he sees Jerusalem and the crowds, and it says right here that the people of Jerusalem, it stirs them up. And they want to know what is happening. Can you imagine going about your Sunday morning usual deals? And then all of a sudden you hear this raucous uproar of people. And some of them get swept up into it. And they're, what? The king is here? Possibly the Messiah is here? Well, yeah, let's pray. Hosanna! Hosanna! And the crowds are going nuts. But Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus weeps over these people. Ah, oh, Jerusalem, you're my people. You are the people that I so much wanted to gather and to love on. But he knows how fickle they are, right? And he knows 
by the end of the week, those hosannas are going to change into crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How can they be this way? How can they celebrate this man mounted on a colt with their robes on the ground and on the back of that colt and the palm fronds and the smell of royalty? Uh, let me just say this. This has never happened before, right? I'm not talking about just in Israeli history. I'm talking about it's never happened before. God never came to the world as a man before. They have been waiting and waiting since the book of Genesis. In Genesis 46, as Jacob is going through the various blessings and the things that are going to happen to his 12 sons, he mentions that there's going to be blessings to the entire world through their lineage. And that one will be coming riding a colt, right? They have all this imagery of a coming Messiah in which salvation will be there for the world. But it had never happened before. And I'll say this, it will never happen again. This opportunity. Before and after, drawn together. Compressing the sides of a man sitting on a colt, riding into a city, to the praises of people. Everything that is above and everything that is on the earth are coming together into this nexus of this moment where Jesus is finally revealing to all that would wish to listen, to look, that he is exactly who many of them suspected that he was. He is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the king. He is the Messiah. No wonder they were praising God, but they missed the message. And when Jesus gets into town, the chief priests and the scribes, they're not happy. They notice all this going around. Remember, they were already upset because of Lazarus' return from the dead. And now this man has the audacity to ride his mule in such a fashion into Jerusalem that people are mistaking him for somebody of great importance. But he's just an itinerant preacher. He's just a Nazarene. He's a Galilean. Now, never before and never again. We didn't get to live in that day. We didn't get to experience that like these people experience it. We live on the far side of what's going to happen in this Passion Week. And so we, we, if you come to church, you're going to feel pretty comfortable in seeing these events play out. Yeah, I know what happens here and I know what happens there. We get the benefit of that resurrection that's coming on Sunday morning, a week from today. Think about that. One week. One week. From today, life will be changed forever. No one, no one, no one will ever live the same way again. Doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, no one will live this way again because God became man and took upon himself, right, the form of you and me even to the point of death. He died for our sins. He took our sins, past, present, and future, upon himself 
on that Mount of Golgotha, which is on the far side of our map this morning of Jerusalem. Wow. But those guys didn't know that at this point. They're walking along. They're just, all they know is that their master, who has been so secretive and so quiet, this morning has chosen to tell the world exactly who he is. That night he returns to Bethany. I don't know what their conversations were like when they were back at Mary and Martha's. But the next morning on Monday, he goes back into Jerusalem and he seems to pur purposely pick a fight, right? I'm going to read from verse 12. And Jesus enters the temple, this is Matthew 21, and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold uh, pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a, like a den of robbers. Wow. So Jesus, who came into town yesterday on a cult to the praises of Hosanna, 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 now has come in, and I don't know if he was telling his men as they were walking up the hill to that southeastern gate, he's saying, hey, guys, when we get there, just kind of hang back, because I've got a plan, all right? And this is what's going to, no, you know, did he say, come and join me and start kicking over tables? I don't think so. What he was doing was fraught with peril. Remember, the powers that be already hated this man. And now he's going into the outer court. I have a picture of the temple for you this morning. But he's going into that outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. And there he is going to kick over the tables of the money changers. Now, people get all kinds of strange ideas as to why he's doing this. They think, well, this wasn't right, right? He shouldn't have done this. Uh, these, these guys, maybe, maybe they were cheating people. Uh, they were not giving the proper money back to those who were from other countries, and they had to exchange their Roman currency, their uh, Antiochian currency, or whatever they had into the required temple tax money, the, the, the shekel. Well, that, that could be. Um, maybe he felt like they were holding these guys at ransom in a sense. They had to buy a pure animal for the sacrifice, a sheep, a goat, a, a dove, and they were charging, you know, just exorbitant prices for these things. Well, that's possible too. But here's something that I think is what really is going on here. Because you had to charge money. You had to change money. It isn't that they were doing commerce in this outer court temple or temple area. It, there's something else going on. If he came into town yesterday riding a cult and receiving the praises of the people, and today he comes in there and he's kicking things over and he's telling them that they're a den of you know, robbers and thieves, and he's doing this in the court of the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles couldn't go into the temple proper. Uh, the God-fearers, as they are sometimes called, these are Gentiles who had decided that the religion of the Jews was the one that they wanted to follow. They couldn't go in. So he stayed out there, and he drew the attention of these people to himself. I think Jesus is more or less announcing to the Gentiles that the salvation that God is going to be offering to the world is going to be offered to you and me. Uh, are you a Gentile this morning? It's possible. Most of us are, probably. Right? 
This is the door opening for you and me to come to salvation through Christ. Up to this time, salvation in Israel had been largely limited to the Jewish people. But today, Jesus is making a point. He's saying that God knows who you are. He's recognized this. And he's already told the people, see that beautiful, magnificent structure, that temple? That's coming down. That's coming down. And it does, right? In 70 AD, the Romans come to town in response to a rebellion by the Jewish people, and they decide they've had enough that the focus of Jewish identity, that temple is going to be removed, and it's scraped. And you know what? It's still down. It doesn't exist today. But what did we study in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 a few months ago when we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians? Where is the temple today? You're the temple. I'm the temple. We Gentiles. Can you believe this? All this in a bag of chips. We're the temple. Wow. That's right. Because Jesus is alive in us. Oh, this Holy Week, it's amazing. Jesus opens the doors to so many things. His death is on the horizon, and only he knows what's coming. You know, on his way out that day after cleansing the temple. Now, by the way, I didn't even mention this. This is really cool. He heals the lame and the blind who are waiting outside of this temple area because they weren't allowed in. If you had something that deformed you, you're missing an eye, you weren't allowed to go in there and do these things, to, to sacrifice. And it's just like Jesus saying, Gentiles, you get to go in. Oh, you lame, blind, you get to go in. They're standing, they're seeing. You now qualify to worship God. Those who had been excluded were now put in. There's no one excluded from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those of you who are trying to act all holier than thou, you who think that you run the church, who don't listen to the Savior, you're going out. What a message. No wonder these men hated him. Now, as I finish this morning, I want you to know I've got a little thing here for you that I hope you'll get on your way out little piece of paper that kind of walks through the timeline of Holy Week, right? What a great way to have your devotions this week, if you're not already doing something like that. But just walk through this week with Christ, right? Do this with your family, for family devotions. Just look at it, follow the uh, verses, and just get an experience of what it's like. So today is Sunday. By next Sunday, by the next time we meet, Christ will have been risen from the dead. What happened in between? Find out as you read God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your care. I pray that you would bless us as we go through this week. May we, Father, imagine what it must have been like for those people to see their Savior on a colt riding into town, the palm branches swaying, the smell of royalty in our nostrils. Jesus accepting our praise and our worship. Father God, 
we know this is going to end at the cross. With Jesus, we're torn between the celebration and the lament. Father, we dedicate our lives to you. We are walking, breathing, living temples of you. I pray, Father, that we would be as attractive to a lost world as Jesus was to the Gentiles and the blind and the lame on that next day. Oh, holy God, may that be true for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.